Take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're in part 2 of this message titled Salvation, the Means of Our Joy. And follow along as I begin reading our passage for us in verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. If you were to ask someone what brought them joy, you might hear answers such as this, my family, my job, hanging out with friends. Some might even say food brings them joy or even money. But really, those aren't things that bring true biblical joy. Those are things that make people happy. They make them happy. In fact, listen to what one professor of psychology at Yale University said. She said this, It's often easiest to think about what might bring us joy when we remember times we've been joyful before. Who were we with? What were we doing How can we recreate those moments to experience joy again? But what this professor doesn't understand is that what she is doing is she is confusing joy with happiness. Remember, happiness has to do with our happenings. The circumstances around us. And what she is telling people to do is to recreate those circumstances so that you can feel happy. Although she calls it joy because she doesn't understand true biblical joy. But the great thing about true biblical joy is that we don't have to recreate circumstances for us to find joy. Because we find joy where? In Christ. Our joy is found in Christ. And therefore, we can have joy in the good times in life and even in the hard times. One Christian author says, is there a difference between happiness and joy? Yes. Joy runs deeper and comes from God. It can be present even when sin and sadness robs us of temporary happiness. Which means that we can even find joy in the midst of the trials in our lives. We can have joy whether we are in the midst of a trial or whether we are just coming out of a trial. Even going into a trial. Because we're always in one of those. And we can find joy. No matter what the circumstances are around us, we can have joy joy. Why? Because our joy comes not from circumstances, but from the reality that we have been saved by Christ. Our joy comes because, as Peter says back up in verse 3, our God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our joy is not tied to our circumstances, but it's tied to our salvation. And we saw that last week as we looked at verse 6. 
We saw that there is, first of all, joy in our present salvation. Peter says there in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. What is the this that Peter's talking about there? He's talking about our salvation, about being born again. All that he told us back up in in verses 3 through 5. And it's in this great reality, the fact that we have been born again by God, that we greatly rejoice. In fact, the persecuted believers that Peter is writing to here had joy in their salvation. In the midst of their trials and tribulations, they had joy. They were able to have joy because they understood the reality of their salvation. That they were children of God and that they belonged to Him. Even when you're suffering for Christ, there is joy that is yours because you belong to Him. Then second, we saw that we find joy in our providential suffering. Joy in our providential suffering. As Peter continues in verse 6, he says, Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. We saw how Peter reminds us that we can have joy even in the midst of the suffering that we're going through in life. These believers that Peter's writing to, they are suffering trials because of their allegiance to Christ, their devotion to Him. And God, by His divine providence, used these momentary trials for a purpose. They're painful, painful trials. They're not always easy for us to handle or to go through, but God has a purpose in taking us through trials. It's to grow us and to cause us to be more sanctified. He uses trials like he did with Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.9 to cause us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in Him. To turn to Him and to trust in Him. And when that is the outcome of a trial, when the outcome of the trial is that we grow in our trust in God, our faith is strengthened, and what do we do? We rejoice. We find joy in that, that we are closer to our God. But there are three more ways that we find joy in this present world. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. Not only do we find joy in our present salvation and in our providential suffering, but number three, we find joy in our proven security. We find joy in our proven security. Look again at verse 7. Notice what Peter says there. He says, So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice there at the beginning of verse 7, Peter says, so that. You see that there? The beginning of verse 7. So that. That's what we call a purpose statement. It's a purpose statement. What Peter is telling us here is that there is a a divine purpose behind the trials that his readers are suffering. And the same is true with us. There's a divine purpose behind the trials that we suffer as well. Now, why does God take us through trials? Is it because He enjoys inflicting pain upon us? Is it because He delights in seeing us suffer? No. God takes us through trials because there is great value in the results of our trials. Did you get that? There is great value in the results of our trials. In fact, listen to what James says in James 1.3. 2 and 3. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. 
The joy doesn't come from the very fact that we are in a trial. But the joy comes because you know that the trial that you are going through is going to produce something in you. That's where we find the joy. And James tells us specifically that it is endurance. That joy comes because we know that as we go through a trial, our faith is being tested and it produces endurance. One commentator calls this staying power. I love that. Endurance is staying power. It's steadfastness that is produced from the trial that you have gone through. Think about this. If you went through life and never had a trial, how would you know whether your faith was real or not? How would you know? Would you know? You wouldn't. Because it's never tested. You would never know whether your faith was real or not. In fact, you'd probably have a lot of doubts as to whether you truly have faith or not. But God takes us through trials to prove that our faith is not only genuine, but it's also an enduring faith. Because true saving faith is an enduring faith. Did you get that? Saving faith, true saving faith, is an enduring faith. Let me give you an example of this. Take your Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. This is the account of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, Abraham's one and only son. Because he's the son of promise. He's the son that God promised to him. Notice in Genesis 22 what it says, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. You see that there? Who did the testing? God did it to Abraham. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. What's missing here? The sacrifice. Notice verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, 
your only son from me. God tested Abraham. His faith was tested that day. And what did Abraham do? He trusted God. He trusted God. In fact, the author of Hebrews even tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. That even if he went through with the act that God was going to raise his son from the dead. Abraham, who had never seen a resurrection before, but who believed in his God, he trusted in God. And his faith was proven. It was an enduring faith, a proven faith. He knew that God would provide. And Abraham needed that, right? Abraham needed that. Think about this. What did Abraham do before Isaac was born? Did he trust God? He didn't. He tried to take things into his own hands, right? God, I know that you promised a son. I'm getting pretty old. My wife's getting really old. I don't know how this is going to work out, so I'll take care of this. Abraham tried to take things into his own hands. And so God needed to test Abraham, not for God's sake, but for Abraham's sake. That's what's happening there in Genesis 22. That was not for God's sake. Does God know Abraham's heart? Of course he does. Why did he put him through that test? So that Abraham would understand his faith. Abraham needed to understand his own heart, and he needed the proof of his faith. Was his faith proven? It was. It was proven. And how do we know of Abraham's proven faith? Because of what? Because of the trial. Do you see that? It's because of the trial. If we don't read about this trial in Genesis 22, we would never know of the faith of Abraham. But it was the trial that God took him through that proved his faith. God tests us and takes us through trials to prove our faith. One commentator says, it is, it is not the test of our faith that is particular value to God, but it is the result of that test in which he sees in our genuine faith the real reason for his creation of us in Christ fulfilled. It's not the, not the test of our faith that is particular value to God, but it's the result of the test. It's the result of the test that we have gone through that is valuable. Because the result shows the genuineness of our faith. Just as it did with Abraham. Now, turn back to 1 Peter 1. And look again at what Peter says about this proven faith in verse 7. Notice he says, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Peter says that your faith is more precious than gold. Now, think about this. Many people today are trying to find joy in all kinds of places, right? They go through hardships, they go through trials in their life, and they're trying to find joy in one of those places that they're looking for, or one of the ways that they're trying to find joy is in money. Gold, things that perish. It can be tempting in the midst of a trial to try and throw money at the problem and try to escape it, right? Take a vacation. Buy something that satisfies you or makes you happy. 
But those things won't bring you joy. They're searching for joy in all the wrong places. It won't bring you joy. Why? Money won't bring you joy because it is perishable. Which is what Peter tells us here. Gold is perishable. Gold was the standard of the day. And he says that standard is is perishable. But genuine faith or proven faith is more precious than the most pure gold. Why? Because genuine faith is eternal. Genuine faith is eternal. Gold is not eternal. But faith is. True, genuine faith will stand the test of time because true, genuine faith is eternal. It lasts forever. Notice what Peter tells us there about this perishable gold. He says it is tested by fire. That's the the purifying process of gold. You put it under extreme heat. The fire is the testing agent that is used to purify and refine the gold. And once it has gone through the fire, then you have a purified gold in your hands. But it's still what? Perishable. It will fade. It's perishable. But Peter says your faith is more precious or of greater worth of, or of more value than gold. More value. And when your faith is tested and withstands the fiery trials, there is great joy because it not only strengthens your faith, but it shows the genuineness of your faith. Now, listen very carefully. Why does God use fiery trials in our lives? Well, not only to prove the genuineness of our faith, but also to separate out the superficial professions of faith. God uses trials not only to prove the genuineness of the faith of those who are true believers, but also to separate out the superficial believers. So-called believers. You see, a person who has a superficial faith won't stand the test. They will fail the test, and they will show that they never had true faith in the first place. And isn't that what Jesus said about the rocky soil in the parable of the sower? Matthew 13, 20, Jesus said, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Huh. Must be a believer then, right? He receives it with joy. But then verse 21, Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when, listen, affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. He has shown that he never had true saving faith in the first place. God will use affliction and persecution to reveal that a person was never truly saved. They won't endure the trial. But will show that they were never truly saved in the first place. But not the good soil. In the parable of the sower, Jesus tells us about the good soil. The good soil will bear fruit and prove the genuineness of their faith. In fact, Luke tells us of the good soil in Luke 8.15, where he says this, But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit, listen to this, with perseverance or with steadfastness. That's the good soil. That's the true believer. 
the one who has true saving faith is the one who will endure, persevere. Genuine faith perseveres. And God will put us through trials to prove our faith to us, not to him, but to us. Because he already knows, right? He knows all things. But he will put us through trials to prove our faith to us. Look, if you doubt your faith, God knows that you need a trial. If you ever doubt your faith, just get ready for a trial. Because God knows that's what you need. To prove the genuineness of your faith. Whether it really is true saving faith or not. But you'll find out at the end of that test. At the end of that trial. When you go through that trial and you come out of that trial with a proven faith, what will you do? Rejoice. Rejoice. Thank you, God, for revealing to me the genuineness of my faith. Your faith is tested and it proved to be genuine and you therefore have confidence and security in Christ you will then have confidence and security in Christ. And then notice the aim or the outcome of that genuine faith. Notice the end of verse 7, where Peter says there, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying here? He's saying that because of the genuineness of your faith, when Christ returns, you will receive praise and glory and honor. Now, I'm probably about to blow some of your minds. You see, you don't only rejoice in the fact of a present proven faith, but you rejoice because that proven or that genuine faith is the means to the end or to something in the future. And what is the end? What is to come in the future? Notice what Peter says there. He says, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does Peter mean by this? What does Peter mean by this? Let me help you with this. Follow along with me. We have seen so far that God saves you. Right? He causes you to be born again by His great mercy. He saves you and He puts you as His child through trials. Right? We all go through trials. And that trial reveals or proves to you that your faith is genuine. And because of that genuine faith, there is something to look forward to in the future. And what is it that we look forward to in the future? Peter tells us here, praise and glory and honor. Now, notice this. Who is the one receiving the praise and the glory and the honor? We are. We are. We are the ones who are receiving the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The one who has proven faith. You mean God is going to give us praise and glory and honor? That's what Peter's telling us. Peter is not saying so that you will give praise and glory and honor to God at the revelation of Jesus Christ, although that is going to happen. But he says, so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is speaking here of God granting you praise and granting you glory and granting you honor. Did I just blow your mind? It's amazing. We wouldn't believe this unless it's written here, right? 
Notice this praise. What is this praise that Peter's talking about? Praise is the recognition or approval that Christians will receive from Christ when He returns. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 21 in the parable of the talents? Listen to what Jesus said. He said, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Well done. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This praise is the reward for the genuine faith that you have. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. God's going to do that. He's going to expose all things. But then he says this, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. God is going to give us praise. God will give us praise or or recognition for the genuineness of our faith. Now, he's not going to bow his knee to us, right? Because who bows the knee? We do. But He will give us praise. Then Peter says glory. What does he mean by glory? Glory indicates the participation in the radiance and glory of the future life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sufferings, trials, tribulation. He says it doesn't even compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then in verse 29 of Romans 8, Paul says, For to those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined he also called. And these whom he called he also justified. And these whom he justified he also what? Glorified. Glorified. God is going to bestow upon us his glory. In fact, look over at chapter 5 of 1 Peter. and Notice what Peter says there in verse 1. Flip over there. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter says this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and notice this, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. There's that glory again. Peter says that he is a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw the glory of Christ, right? Peter, James, and John, they were all there. And what did Peter want to do while he was there on the mountain? Stay there. Make tents. There's the glory of Christ. Let's, well, we, we're not going anywhere. Just hang out here forever. Let's stay here. But did he partake of the glory of Christ? You see, that word partaker there means one who takes part in something with someone. And the term implies personal participation. Peter had a glimpse of the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he did not partake in it. He didn't partake in it. Well, what does Peter say? There in 
chapter 5 and verse 1, he says that it will be revealed, and when it is revealed, then he will fully partake in this glory for all of eternity. There will be personal participation where he will receive the glory of Christ. And God will do that for all those who have genuine faith in him. Then, back in our passage at the end of verse 7, Peter says the third thing there. He says, honor. Honor. What does he mean by honor? God will grant to us honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this honor? This is probably rewards. Or what one commentator describes as rank. Listen to what Jesus said in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will, listen to this, honor him. The Father will honor him. We will be rewarded by God. In fact, Jesus says in Revelation twenty two twelve, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. He will honor those who are, who are his. He will reward us. And so we will receive praise and glory and honor. One commentator says, praise will be the language that will be used about our faith. Glory will be the admiration accorded to us. And honor will be the rank in which we will be placed. Now, Before you leave here this morning with a big head over the praise and the glory and honor that you're going to receive from Christ, (laughs) because of the genuineness of your faith, remember who gave you that faith. You did nothing to deserve it. Nothing to earn it. It's a gift from God. He granted it to you. He gifted it to you. We already saw that Peter told us that we've been born again because of the great mercy of our God. Not because of anything that we have done. Not because we are so great. And that's what blows our minds with this, right? To think, I don't deserve any of that. I don't deserve praise and glory and honor from God. I'm a wretched sinner. All I've done is sinned against a holy and righteous God. I don't deserve this. But God will give it because of the genuineness of our faith. But that faith in which He granted to us. And so, we have nothing to boast about in ourselves, right? If your head got big there for a moment, I hope it's come back down. (laughs) Realizing that we can't boast in ourselves should humble us. Our boast is in in Christ who has saved us. And at the revelation of Christ, we will receive praise and glory and honor. And then you know what we're going to do? Give it all back. Praise and glory and honor as we worship Him. Peter tells us we will receive praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, think about how encouraging this would be for those persecuted believers that Peter's writing to. What were they receiving at this time for their genuine faith? What were they receiving? They were receiving scoffing, and rejection and persecution for their faith during this lifetime. That's what they were receiving. But Peter comforts them and he reminds them that when Christ returns, the scene will be reversed. 
and their scoffers and persecutors will receive their payment. But these persecuted believers will receive their reward. And for that, what should they do? Rejoice. Rejoice. Remember we talked about last week. It's momentary. Momentary affliction. Just for a moment here. Peter comforts them with this. And think about the security then that they have in this truth and the security that we have because of our proven faith. God takes us through trials. We should rejoice for those trials because God is showing us the genuineness of our faith when we come out of that. And we find security in that. That I can be assured that I am a child of God because my faith is a persevering faith, which means it's a genuine faith. And for that, we rejoice. And so we find joy in our present salvation, joy in our providential suffering, in our proven security. Number four, we find joy in our precious Savior. We find joy in our precious Savior. Look at verse 8. Notice what Peter says there. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, notice Peter had just spoken of the future revelation of Christ at the end of verse 7. But now he turns to their present relationship with Christ there in verse 8. And let me ask you this. Is it easy to love and trust someone that you have seen and heard and touched physically? It is, right? You know them. You see them. You watch them. There's interaction with them. And therefore, that helps you to trust them as you see the type of person that they are. But these believers have never seen or heard or touched Christ physically. Peter did, right? Peter walked with him for three years, followed him around, learned from Jesus, sat right next to Jesus, ate with him. But Peter knows that these readers that he's writing to have never seen Jesus, and yet they still have joy. Why? Because they love him and believe in him. Because they love Him and believe in Him. Even in the midst of their trials, they have joy because their joy is not dependent upon their circumstances, but upon their relationship with their Savior. Because they've been saved by Him. And the same is true of us. We love Him and we believe in Him, right? We love Him. And where did this love for Christ come from? It started first with his love for us, right? 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Christ demonstrated his love for us by dying on a cross for our sins to redeem us from an eternity in hell. And then 1 John 4.19 says we love because He first loved us. We haven't seen Him, but we love Him. We haven't heard Him audibly, but we love Him. We haven't touched Him, but we love Him. And this love for Him is the true mark of our genuine faith. Love for Christ is the true mark of our genuine faith. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Pretty strong language there, huh? If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. We're not accursed because we love Him. We love Him. 
And her love for Christ proves that we are not a curse, but that we belong to Christ. And not only do we love Him, but we also believe in Him. Remember when Thomas doubted because he hadn't seen the risen Christ? Remember that? Christ is risen. Thomas, he's risen. Ah, I won't believe it unless I what? See him and touch him. Unless I touch him. Thomas wanted to see the imprints of the nails in Jesus' hands and then touch them and, and touch the side of Jesus. And so Jesus appears in the room where they're at. And he tells Thomas to do what? Touch him. Touch me. Here I am. I'm risen. And then Jesus said in John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Thomas. Then he gives this great blessing. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Yeah, Thomas, you are blessed, but, but you've seen me. You've touched me. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Believe in me. Who is that? That's us. That's who Jesus is talking about there, right? He's talking about us. No one has seen him. Somebody comes and tells you that they've seen him, run away from them. They haven't. He will return again and we will all see him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we're blessed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. That's us, and that's these persecuted believers that Peter's writing to. We have not seen Christ, but we are blessed because we believe in Him, and because we love Him and believe in Him, what does that produce in us? Joy. 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 In fact, notice what Peter says about his readers there produced joy inexpressible and full of glory. What does Peter mean by this? He means that this is no earthly joy. That this joy is not born of anything here on earth, but it is divinely infused. And therefore, this is a joy that cannot adequately be expressed by human words. You ever been there before? Where you're just so filled with joy in Christ and what Christ is, you can't even explain it. Why are you so joyful? I have no words. It's just too great to express the joy that I have. It's unspeakable because it's a joy that can be experienced even in the midst of suffering and persecution. And that seems like a paradox, to experience joy in the midst of a trial. But that's how amazing this joy in Christ is. That we can even experience it in the midst of difficulty and hardship in our life. And we experience this joy because of the relationship that we have with our precious Savior. And so we find joy in our present salvation, in our providential suffering, in our proven security, in our precious Savior. And then finally, we find joy in our promised salvation. In our promised salvation. Look at verse 9. Notice what Peter says there. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, what Peter is talking about here is the present reality of our salvation. There's both a present reality and there's also a future reality to our salvation. That word obtaining there is a present middle participle in the Greek, meaning that this is something that is ongoing now. That we now are presently obtaining, as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. You right now have the salvation of your soul. As those who love and believe in Christ. 
It's yours and it's promised to you. And that's why you can rejoice now. In fact, verse 9 here even relates back to the end of verse 8. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's a present reality in our lives. It's something that you and I can do presently now. We don't have to wait to rejoice until the future, right? We can rejoice now because we are presently obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. And this is a promise that is presently ours. It's presently ours, and it's presently ours of a future salvation, a future reality. And yet there's this tension here between our present salvation and our future experience as believers. There's this tension. There is a future aspect to our salvation which will ultimately be realized at the return of Christ when we are glorified. But there is a present appropriation of our salvation by faith. That is, because of our present faith, that we have in Christ, the future is promised to us. We presently have salvation, but we also have salvation in the future because of the genuineness of our faith. Because true, genuine faith is enduring faith, which means can we ever lose it? You can't. You can't lose your salvation. Isn't that joyful news? We rejoice because we have presently been saved, but there also awaits for us a future of salvation where we will no longer be living in this flesh, where there will no longer be the battle between the, the spirit and the flesh. The flesh will be redeemed, made perfect, glorified in the future. That's a future promise. The salvation of your souls. What does that mean? It means the salvation of your whole being. He's not here just talking about the soul or the inner man, but he's talking about the whole being here. As one commentator says, the salvation of your souls refers to the entire saving activity of God. This is both body and spirit. Both body and soul. Peter is not distinguishing the soul from the body here. But he's saying that your whole being still awaits that final salvation which will be realized when Christ returns. And our body is resurrected. And is glorified. And will live with Christ forever. And it's promised to us in the future because it's a present reality in our lives. And this gives us every reason to rejoice, right? We should rejoice. We not only presently have salvation, but we have the promise of the salvation of our whole being in the future when Christ returns. Listen, church, what else can we ask for? What else can we ask for? What is better than that? Anything in this life? Nothing. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing greater than that. So how should we respond to this great truth? We should rejoice and continue to live our lives full of joy no matter what the circumstances are around us. We should rejoice in our salvation. In closing, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China who established the China Inland Mission. And in the late 1800s, he was in China in a time of political unrest. Rioting broke out in the streets near two of his mission works. And as these riots broke out, Hudson Taylor quietly whistled the tune of one of his favorite hymns. 
It was titled this, Jesus, I am resting, resting. The young evangelist who was with him asked, how can you whistle while our friends are in so much danger? To which Taylor answered, would you have me anxious and troubled? That would not help them and would certainly incapacitate me for my work. I have just to roll the burden to the Lord. The unrest in China led to the Boxer Rebellion, which was an uprising of many of the Chinese against Westernism and Christianity in particular. And they persecuted any foreigners and especially any Chinese who had converted to Christianity. It was an all-out attack against brothers and sisters in Christ. And on July 9th, 1901, activists raided the China Inland Mission and killed 58 adults and 21 children. One of those Christian missionaries killed was a 53-year-old man named Thomas Piggott. Thomas Piggott. Hudson Taylor was grieved by the persecution and what happened to his Christian missionary friends, but during this time, he found comfort in the lyrics to the song, Jesus, I am resting, resting, which says this, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul, for by thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. He found comfort in a hymn that speaks of the joy that we have in Christ. The woman who wrote the lyrics to that hymn is named Jean Sophia Piggott. She's the older sister of Thomas Piggott, who died on that day. That's the hymn that we're going to close with this morning. But listen, church we must realize that even in the greatest trials that we face in life, we can find joy. Joy, knowing that we have been saved by Christ and that we are obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Father, How amazing is your love for us. How great you are. That Lord, you have saved us. Not because of anything that we have done. In fact, all that we have done is rebelled against you. Sinned against you, a holy and righteous God. And yet you, by your great mercy, and your great love have saved us. Father, we rejoice in that. And I pray that our hearts would continuously be lifted up in praise and glory and adoration and joy knowing that we belong to you. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who does not know you who's been separated from you because of their sin. They have been separated from you, a holy and righteous God. Now, Lord, we know that you sent your Son, your one and only Son, to die on a cross and to be buried and to raise again on the third day to make the payment for sin 
so that we could be saved and have eternal life with you. Father, I pray that you would grant any unbeliever who is here this morning repentance and faith. That they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for eternal life. That you would do that work in their heart. And that they would leave here this morning with a heart full of joy, rejoicing at the work that you have done in their heart. And Lord, I pray that you would help us who are believers to leave from this place this morning with hearts full of joy, rejoicing at what you have done in our hearts, that you took our dead hearts and made them alive. That you, God, saved us. We thank you for that. We love you. We believe in you. We trust in you. And we give you all praise and glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.